Hey, this is Jonathan Kassam, and you are listening to the Smash Up Derby podcast. And this is Sam Smucker. I'm co-host here with Jonathan. We're here today with Rosemary Foyer, a professor at Northern Illinois University uh, who studies uh, labor history and labor relations. Um, Rosemary, welcome. Thanks for joining us on the Smash Up Derby. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. My hope here is that we're gonna we're, we're gonna organize the this uh, episode around the life of William Sentner, who was the lead, the president of District Eight, the United Electrical Workers District Eight, and um, uh, uh, just a, almost a social force unto himself in yeah. um, in St. Louis. Uh, her research, uh, which she did while she was a PhD student at Washington University in St. Louis can be found in a book called Radical Unionism in the Midwest that came out in 2006. It's an excellent read. I really recommend it to anybody who's interested in labor history or the history of St. Louis. Did you know about William Setner before you went to St. Louis? No, not at all. I mean, I grew up in a, um, in a, um, actually in a family which uh, was you know, working class, very poor, but my father was a John Birch Society member. Mm. <laughs> and so I grew up thinking, um, you know, being taught about the fact that communists were trying to take over the Democratic Party. But he, as it turned out, was one of those people who worked in the industry that Sentner tried to organize. So it's uh, quite interesting, you know, this twists and turns, but I would have had no idea about this. We didn't learn anything about labor history, but it was really in my interest in activism around labor that I became involved in in researching labor. Uh, So uh, the two have always gone together for me. I think um, that's uh, activists that I knew brought a lot of the questions that, um, that I ask of this work. And I, um, I think it's still relevant to people who are interested in history, not, not as just, oh, here's a model that we can use, but rather thinking about how uh, people have organized in the past as a window into the present. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty open about that, that it's, um, you know, I'm a radical labor historian, um, and I brought some of those questions to this. I started out to look at the CIO in general, mm-hmm. and when I found this union, it just kept coming back. This was the force in St. Louis and in the Midwest. It was a, um, a radical force for social transformation. And I ended up saying, well, I'm not going to tell the story of the entire CIO, but rather look at the the, the one union that um, really made the CIO different in St. Louis. And that turned out to be the District 8. And I should say that um, it was Iowa, it was parts of Indiana, you know, it extended to some... Um, some parts of uh, Kentucky and Tennessee. So it was, um, you know, Midwest broadly. And so that's, it, it was sort of, you know, a, a district that made a, a huge difference in the lives of people in the 1930s and 40s. Well, so tell us about William Setner. Who was William Setner? Well, he was, um, you know, a leading radical activist in the Midwest. He was a member of the, an open um, member of the Communist Party. He had gotten involved in the Communist Party in the early 1930s, and um, yet, amazingly, by the 1940s, he was actually running a small bureau in D.C. of um, planning for government um, 
distribution of contracts. So he went the whole gamut to being a complete outsider, to being somewhat influential, to using his organizing talents in, in an amazingly effective way, advocating for environmental transfer for transformation of the environment if you want to think about how modern he was um, as an organizer really coming up with great ideas uh, for economic planning and it seemed to be for seem it seemed for a while he might actually succeed until red baiting tore the whole um, labor movement apart and you know forces of arrayed against the radical wing of the labor movement uh, destroyed him and and effectively killed him. I think I say that in the story. There's no doubt in my mind that it killed him. Um, Sounds dramatic there, but his background was... He dies very young, right? Yes. Yes. Around age 50 from a heart attack. And I mean, his his family was persecuted. His wife was persecuted. His kids were persecuted. Um, The persecution of his wife went on until the 1980s. So um, it was it was merciless. And, um, you know, it's hard not to have some sympathy with people who uh, were facing this. And you know, I um, I think I did maintain uh, uh, as much distance as I could, but I also, you know, very clearly could see uh, the opportunist opportunist from people who um, had heart and soul, and and mm. I, I I think I um, I think I make that pretty clear in so in the book. Is is um, Setner is he from St. Louis? How does he? Yes, actually, his he's the son of Russian Jewish immigrants who went in the um, you know garment workers. Uh, St. Louis had a, a garment um, trade, and they were actually the low wage garment industry uh, and and really the scourge of the garment industry. And his, um, but but he wasn't from a political family at all. They were Russian Jewish immigrants striving to make for a better life. You know, they were, of course, Russian immigrants at that time. Russian Jewish immigrants were thought of as this cabal terrorist sect. Mm. So, um, but it was very clear from his family they were Talmudic and they were, you know, practicing religious uh, Jews who who were just trying to make their way. His brother, you know, went into the military and Mm. was never left winger. Mm -hmm. So he was not from a political family at all. Sentner was extremely bright. And it looked like he would become an architect if he could make it, if he could get into college. And he was bright enough. He he graduated from high school at age 16. And um, he was really smart. And Washington U in those days had this program for working class uh, aspiring kids. And you could actually afford it. I mean, it's just unimaginable now. (laughs) (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, even with loans, but there he couldn't. But he also bombed out because, um, you know, he lost funding and he had to choose between helping to support himself and his family or college. And so he actually took to the road in the late 1920s when the economy um, turned down. But he also paired up with this kind of Marxist hobo. So let me. <laughs> on before- Washington, you and took to the road, you know, in that kind of romantic young um way young men might in some in some era in that era so let me ask about his his growing up do you know um what part of the city he lived in 
he lived in the near north side in the Jewish community, um, and that was really next to the African American community. So, it, but it was, I mean, from what I've gathered, a a, a fairly, um, at least for a young young kid, isolated. Mm-hmm. You know, he went to school in his Jewish community, and he was right. thinking like that. But you know, he for a lot of reasons, loved St. Louis history. Um, everybody who knew him said he was, you know, he was so proud to be part of St. Louis and learn the history. He learned it well before he was a radical. And he loved the stories of the, of um, you know, the Civil War era, as well as, um, you know, the stories of the Mississippi Riverfront and all of that. So he was definitely um, identified with St. Louis. So he was born in 1907, and his family, you know, they were new young immigrants, and I'm sure that, you know, he was um, somewhat of a disappointment in, in respect to his religiosity because he wasn't, he, he lost that early on. But other than that, he was um, a dutiful son. And do you know if his parents worked um, in the uh, textile industry there, like along Locust Street? or? Um, uh, yeah, or? He, they worked in the downtown industry, but his, uh, in a, his father was a very skilled tailor, and his mother worked in the home as, um, you know, I guess as a piece worker or as doing some of the side work for mm-hmm. her, for his father. So he would have been um, somebody who, you know, was able to be, use his skills and, and thought he might advance. But they were always hard times. You know, it was always hard times. Right. So at some point then he drops out of Washington University. and he, Yeah, I think he, he had a little bit, almost three years in. So... Um, he um, he dropped out and took to the road. What what year is it that he goes on the road? Then he leaves St. Louis. Yeah, uh, I mean, one of the th- by the way, with um, he he is also, even though he gets into Washington U, you have to say that he felt a class sense of class at Washington U. He was a working class kid, and he was certainly he certainly felt a distinction from the other students there, and that that kind of privilege. Um, really impacted him. So even though he was enrolled in Washington U School of Architecture, he was um, he he felt that difference, you know, being the son of um, a um, a garment worker, right, in right. and being Jewish. So there there were certainly other Jewish kids, and he meets a, a group of radicals there. He. You know, he is, um, he's not the only person who's being radicalized. So I think in co- his college experience, um, he was somewhat redirected by that college experience. So it was very important. Um, and he um, met this intellectual, he, somebody introduced him. He introduced him to Karl Marx's writings and political theory, and they would argue and when uh, it was in 1927, his finances fell short. You know, he didn't want to be a burden, couldn't find uh, decent work in St. Louis, and decided to take to the road with his friend. The catalyst for the shortness of finances was his father's death in 1927. Mm-hmm. Oh. So, um, you know, his money is falling short. His um, his mother and his brother are living at home together 
and uh, his brother is supporting his mother, but he would just be another mouth to feed. So he takes off to the uh, on the road for a while, and actually ends up um, in you know after a series of short term jobs, going to sea. And there, I mean, I think that was the key. He encounters this radical seamen's culture, you know, of the the unions on the West Coast in particular. If um, people don't know, this is a culture in which people would read Karl Marx on board ship and also just learn the power of syndicalist or, you know, direct action kind of militant um, strategies. I had a friend, um, Bob Tibbs, and he described this. He said, you know, I was uh, I was in the um, Siemens Union and we would go back. We would insist that the ship go back for marmalade if they were without marmalade. Hmm. You know, we wouldn't do anything. And so that could occur in the right situations. And Sentner, um, you know, that that impressed him. So he would he would study architecture on the port, and so he was still caught between these worlds. You know, would he go back and um, complete a degree in architecture, um, or you know, pour himself into this other life of radical radicalism? Um, he was not yet a member of any party, you know, but he was encountering people who were communist and. Wobblies, the industrial workers of the world, uh, socialist, and um, that that definitely had an impact. The, you know, the FBI said, well, he was done after he came back from that. <laughs> he had become a communist, if not in fact, and um, mm-hmm. in practice. And when did when does he come back? He comes back around 1930, just when the um, movement is um, growing in St. Louis, the unemployed movement. And he is, you know, again, doing conventional jobs. If you can think about it in the, in the present era, it'd be somebody who's, you know, maybe going and working at a warehouse for a little while, then going and working another itinerant job. That was how people kept afloat and certainly how he did. He was trying to get into, it it seemed that he might get into construction, and he learned to be a carpenter at this time. And that's what, after he was purged from the labor movement, he was again working as a carpenter. So he learned these great skills. He became a draftsman. Mm -hmm. So for about eight years before he became involved in the CIO, he could take these jobs while he was organizing in the radical movement. And becoming an unemployed movement organizer or, you know, an organizer with the trade union Unity League or just becoming a Communist Party activist. He he had itinerant kind of jobs. And I, I see people um, in that situation today, you know, <laughs> so many people. This was uh, this is precarious work. What was the first sort of political organizational um, struggle he was involved in? Clearly, he was involved in the unemployed movement. And um, but the first real um, impact, and it was a, a, it's a, an amazing story from its time, is um, is the Nutpicker strike. This yeah. is uh, 1933, and that was so formative for him. It it 
really became a capsule formula for the CIO um, because it was a a struggle that was based in uh, the most downtrodden workers. Um, It was a struggle of black and white women workers. Um, And it was before the NRA had sanctioned unions, at least marginally, through Mm. Section 7A. And for uh, listeners, Section 7A was the supposed legal foundation of unionism in the 1930s, where workers were um, given government sanction for the first time in U.S. history, uh, the right to organize and um, bargain. Supposedly, again, supposedly, but this this preceded that era, and yet they won. I mean, these workers won at least temporarily. Mm -hmm. They won, and so it showed what was possible um, through some of the strategies of uniting unemployed and employed workers, uniting black and white Mm -hmm. to unite and fight. That was a slogan of the era, and so it became almost a cause celeb of around the Midwest, people heard of Sentner, who had been strategic in organizing and representing this group of workers. So his, um, he, you know, he seemed to catapult. But the grounding was in this, um, you know, a whole series of organizers who educated him and others on community-based organizing. So let, let's step back here. Um, so the, the, this is the Funston Nutpicker Strike. Right. right, and it's 1933. Well, it wasn't only Funston; it was all they really had a general strike of the nuts of companies. the nut pickers. So, <laughs> what's right. a nut picker? Tell us that. Yeah. let's start there. Well, before it was all mechanized, um, you know, uh, women would stand in these dirty nut picking factories um, in the most disgusting conditions um, and clean the nuts. And the, the nut meats would be put in one sack, and the um, the shells in another. So they just so cracking. This was cracking a this was across open. from from across the southwest and the Midwest. All the nuts would come to Funston, and this guy was a guy who was a retrograde. Funston was the key factory. He was a retrograde Southern, um, you know, descendant of slave owners, and he treated his workers, you know his black workers as though, um, you know, they deserved these horrible jobs. But there were a series of jobs like this. There were all these industries that were so-called marginal that the um, radicals targeted these because they were, you know, embedded in the unemployed movement and these people were suffering. They were on uh, relief, as it was called then. At the same time, they were working full time. Because they qualify, their wages were so low, they qualified for government programs such as they were. These were mostly local government assistance, right? Not mm-hmm. federal. There was no such thing then. Um, s- but they would go and get food to feed themselves because their wages were so low. They'd get food from the pantries, Um at the end of the week. So they weren't, it wasn't far from a living wage. It, you know, here were workers that were completely ignored by the traditional labor movement and the Trade Union Unity League, which was a factor of the Communist Party, really. It was, um, you know, organized by Communist Party activists, um, decided to organize them. And 
it was an amazing success given that they actually won something for um, by going on strike. And um, how many, well, first of all, these factories, they were also located sort of around um, downtown St. Louis? Yes. Or further mm-hmm. out? Yeah. Sort of, again, they, on that near north side? And St. Louis. So they were, they were actually not um, concentrated. They were all over um, the Metro East, too. So they had plants in East St. Louis. and um, But mostly, yeah, down the main, main uh, thoroughfare of St. Louis on Market Street, uh, one woman who I interviewed said she was a white woman who I interviewed said the white women were on the first floor. She said it was weeks that she was working there and she finally saw a light underneath her and saw that there were black women working in the basement. Mm-hmm. Um, I interviewed a an African-American woman who worked there and she said she would uh, not go to the bathroom all day because the toilets were so bad. And she said she just got sick from that. There, so there were just so many grievances. And the key is, despite how low the pay already was, um, they paid about $4 to African Americans and $6 a week to white white women mm-hmm. so they were trying to divide and conquer by you know paying whites a little bit more horrible conditions for everybody but using race um to divide and do you have a sense so, of how they were able to organize because this strike well, is covering thousands you know i mean hundreds of people right so how were they right. able to organize it well it was a bit uh, clandestine, like a lot of 1930s organizing was, you really under the radar. And I think employers were somewhat taken by surprise by some of this organizing because they had been so victorious in the period, you know, after World War One and eliminated so many unions. They didn't think that this would be successful. So there was a little bit of neglect going on on the part of uh, some of the employers. But it was because it happened in the community and not at the workplace. It wasn't this, I don't know, stereotype that you see in the movies of organizers coming and, uh, you know, leafleting the factories and all of a sudden workers get a light on, you know, and mm-hmm. and uh, and start to organize and um, all of that. It was because so many of the African-Americans who were part of the unemployed movement, they were the heart, or at least, um, you know, a third of the unemployed movement activists were African-American men and women, and they gave contacts. Yeah, uh, that, um, con- that the core, that the, the, the organizing for the nut pickers started with um, the organizing for unemployed relief or for food, for bread, for um, forcing the city to basically give some basic provisions so that people could survive in the midst of the Great Depression. That was a very empowering movement, and that was where the core group of net pickers came from. And Setner would have been in there as well. Yes. He would have met mm-hmm. them through all through that. Exactly. He, he came back, and he was under the, um, I guess, the, he was guided by Ralph Shaw, who was a skilled organizer, and he had been organizing in the mines and in, um, you know, the Patterson, in Patterson, New Jersey. He had a wealth of experience on how you make an effective uh, campaign. So people think the tw- 1920s was just barren, that there was no experience. But 
Um, he, you know, he was involved in organizing Southern Illinois, in Southern Illinois, especially, and he, um, he really had some, uh, gave, gave Sentner a great education through, um, that experience. So, um, the other thing that I have to keep in mind is that this is when Sentner met his wife and I don't want to leave her out because she was a big uh, influence on him all throughout his life. Uh, Antonio, she became, she was Antonio Radasevich and she was from a left-wing mining family and knew Ralph Shaw. So that's how they all came together. Mm-hmm. But Ralph Shaw was a very experienced, um, Food Workers Industrial Union. That was the union that they organized the um, the uh, nut pickers strike from. And, and they and were he- all involved, and they, they thought of it as really important. It was important to um, really revive the industrial union movement. So if, uh, just so that people know, much the AFL was mostly craft-based, and it was... Um, you had miners and a few other unions that were were along the lines of industrial organization. In other words, organizing all workers despite skill. Um, well, you know, the AFL would never have been interested in organizing these African-American women at all. And mm-hmm. it was important. It's important to know that, you know, that that experience of thinking beyond skill and craft and male um, versus female, that thinking of these workers as important was an amazingly radical move, um, and um, they that that radical move was um, responded to by these black women who took the bull by the horn mm. <laughs> and uh, and made themselves into the major leadership force that they that they did. What happened in this strike? Well, first of all, they demanded equal wages for black and white workers. They demanded a major wage increase, and they demanded way union recognition. They elected a committee of 12. They did not send in Sentner or their leaders. Um, they de- they elected that committee and presented their demands and then waited for an answer and they developed organization while they were doing that. They also brought the entire unemployed movement to the first day of picket line. So it is important in these struggles in the 1930s, just as it is now, to overcome fear, right? And that meant having a base of people that makes it safer to join the lines. And so they had a lot of white people on that line. That was important because if it had just been, you know, they they needed to pull out the white workers with the black workers. And so they got, they pulled out every group and they pulled out a lot of um, people from even middle class to come in and, uh, and come to that line in a sign of strength and support. The, um, the most notable thing that the black women remarked upon was that in that context, these uh, their supervisors, um, they said, got to trembling when they were confronted with that. They had been so used to using fear, but then when they they all massed in their managers' offices, they could sense that they might be onto something, right? Mm-hmm. And they staged this walkout. They brought in food, a massive amount of food for a short, for, for so that people could see we're in this. We're going to make sure these women can stay out, and we're not. We're going to have a mass picket line so nobody can cross that line. So it was, you know, a first instant of things that had gone on only in pockets in the 1920s, um, but had been. Um, 
you know, pretty standard for radicals in the early era, era you know, of mass picketing, these roving strike brigades where, um, you know, you bring a whole group, a huge group of uh, people from one plant to another to shut it down. They got group arrest, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so people were being arrested in mass and filling the jails. And then they would get their middle-class allies to actually go bail them out systematically. Um, So it was um, a major, (laughs) major press event. Um, People could not help but pay attention. Did you have the opportunity to interview um, strikers or people who... but they would have yeah. barely, they would not, would they have been alive even? Yeah, a few were. I mean, some of these girls, one of them was 15 years old and working in the plant. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I was able to, luckily, uh, I tried as much as I could to, to find, I only found two of the African-American women. Uh, I mean, frankly, the mortality rate was, um, I, I, I tried so hard to find as many as I could. Um Right. There were there were older women who were leading this, but there were quite a few young girls, um, and so. Um, Do you remember you know, the I names? Did, of I did the, find uh, of, I, of the women who up. led it. Do you remember? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Carrie. Um, what is her name? Carrie Smith was mm-hmm. an older. Now she was a religious woman, but she had a, a great line that was captured by the press. Uh, she said. I'm going to hold a Bible in one hand and a brick in the other. (laughs) And um, they would not lose with those two devices. (laughs) And, um, you know, they, they had young women, um, really young women. And they, some of them had been, you know, actually joined the party and, uh, and were, were activists from that, but they, they were able to get, there was a left wing of the labor movement that looked at this and said, Wow, you know, there. Th- this is a movement happening, and joined. Mm-hmm. Um, there was something like the Bakers Union comp- was left wing in the uh, in St. Louis at that time. Brought bread down every day, but then you know there was so there were these divisions based on um, well, socialist versus communist. So, for instance, the Amalgamated Clothing Workers refused to join the mass pickets. But they had a kind of theater. They overcame that. And again, it was the unemployed movement. The whole point of the Trade Union Unity League was to unite unemployed with employed. There were so many unemployed, and they just, they knew these women, and they came to the picket line. And this was black and white, from what I've gathered. How is the strike resolved? How long does it go on, and what happens? It's actually, um, I think it just is a few weeks before, you know, this, what I call a cascade of solidarity. You know, even though you don't have official union support, you have enough support from the working class community. And I think it is important to recognize it's both black and white from Mm -hmm. what I was gathering. They, but, but the amazing thing was that the respecting the, um, the, the Nutpickers Union respected bl- the black leadership and and did a lot to uh, unite them. And they have there's this dramatic woman, m- moment when this um, there's a meeting, a mass picket meeting at um, nearby the in a nearby park. And, you know, they're um, the they there's a declaration of support of uh, white girls for the black um, leadership 
And I think that's an extraordinary moment in St. Louis history. It gets settled um, when Centner and gets this coalition with pretty important uh, figures in the Jewish community and in the Episcopal Church and some Catholic Church support, believe it or not. And it's just brilliant use of theater that I see is coming from an earlier period. I see this with figures like Mother Jones and uh, IWW, where they do these strategies that have been passed on from other generations. You know, they do this, um, they, they, they take their um, paychecks to the churches and they reveal how little they've been paid. So they're unopened paychecks. And in this dramatic moments, they open the paychecks to reveal that they got a dollar fifty for the entire week. And people see, we can't live, you can't live on that. And they're saying, all we want is a living wage. So, you know, all those issues that we're facing now, um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, they force the mayor to side with them. That's one of the strategic factors here. And the mayor won't send in the police to bust up the picket lines because they've organized the community well enough to put shame, <laughs> um, to shame him about using the police against people who are fighting for a living wage. Uh, they get the Urban League. You know, they, they, they at least keep the urban league from denouncing these communists mm-hmm. so that um you know it's like this widening circle of support for these uh, women who are put into the leadership positions and that is is a, a critical strike of that era and what how do they settle it what's the settlement uh they get everything except union recognition so they doubled their pay they got equal pay for black workers with white workers you know, of course, the lack of union recognition was fairly, um, you know, long term. It was really a, a great hardship on this. And and I don't know, even if they had gotten that, that it would have mattered that much. I mean, this union kept it up for about two years. But what eventually happens is they send out all that work to Texas. They, mm-hmm. they completely mechanize it in St. Louis and send it out. And I think, you know, that's what happened a lot in these in this era. There is not um, a magical, stable period for a lot of unions, you know. There's, right. The companies are always organizing. And believe it or not, the same kind of organization takes place in Texas later on. We have this amazing strike um, by Emma Tenayuka, who's also a Communist Party organizer, and she organizes the nut pickers in Texas. And we have almost a repeat of that entire struggle down in Texas, including the civil rights aspect um, and so forth. And uh, again, they actually win for a time, but the company does the same thing, always moving, you know. But I, and I don't, I think the important point here is that these workers are transformed. And I tell in the book, not a full story about it, but later on, a lot of these nut pickers become involved in the United Electrical Workers when they get jobs in factories in, during the war. Mm-hmm. So they are not, it is not, um, you know, unrequited. It's something that I think unions could keep in mind that um, committing to the struggle. Right, as part of the story of the 1930s of getting a hardcore group of people who think, hey, you know, I might, I might commit myself to this project, 
And um, I think that's what happened with the unemployed organizing, with this community-based organizing, and to see something as astounding as this victory in the in the heart of the depression at the beginning of the depression, and uh, the people can win sometimes. Mm. Um, they kept up in a massive campaign. They they did so much that was innovative and that was repeatedly used by the United Electrical Workers and by Sentner later on, including um, you know things that. Um, people think of as innovative now, which is having a um, community-based um, board to rule on um, to rule on whether the companies are, you know, acting like a jobs with justice board. Mm-hmm. You know, that's all done in this period. Um, so, at this point, Setner has joined the Communist Party. Um, he probably joined before the strike. Obviously. No, it, yeah. he actually had. It was, um, it was, he then went, after this uh, struggle, other African-American workers were clamoring to organize, and it was in a metal workers industrial union struggle, he, it was, and rag pickers, I mean, he got hauled in the jail and beat mercilessly, and that's when, according to his wife, he actually decided to sign a card, he said it was at the, after he got beat up, you know, Mm -hmm. um, pretty badly he he decided it was time to really sign his card so up until this point i think you could ha- you could be involved in this and sort of um even be a leader in like the food workers industrial union is union but not actually be a card carrying member so to speak right so you know, this, this is- was people have to keep in mind this was you know just for people who don't know the communist party was the direct action uh vehicle you know they were really um picking up on strategies in the unemployed movement that had um, direct effect on people's day-to-day struggle. And and that was what he appreciated about them. But you could also, of course, get beat beat to beat up mercilessly it's not wasn't as romantic <laughs> uh and if you survived i guess you could live to tell stories but you took your life in your hand sometime i mean what's interesting too is that you know these unions um the trade union unity league unions that they were started by the communist party but in fact run by occasionally or you know, uh, had lots of people around them who were not in the Communist Party. Yes, absolutely. It is a it's a myth to say that they were completely controlled, and I think that that's that should have that's certainly what was happening here. He was an activist, and he could have remained in that without ever joining the party. Mm-hmm. He did um, uh, become, you know, I guess more the the committed to the Communist Party as a result of this. And I think it was meeting his wife, who was already a communist, his wife-to-be. Mm-hmm. She was a Communist Party activist. And I think that was important. And then he became, for you know, he, he was involved in a series of these struggles in the next couple of years until um, the CIO came about. So he was... And was he being paid as a um, trade union Unity League staff person then? Barely. I mean, uh, you know, people have this notion that somehow the, the you know, the uh, Soviet Union was funneling money. And <laughs> mm-hmm. it's like he was uh, barely uh, living. People would give them food. And that's how he lived. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's a myth that it's all just working class. There were, there were a lot of middle class supporters of this. And they would throw him some food. 
you know, stock mm-hmm. his uh, stock their pantries in support of this kind of organizing. So there, he had a number of there were doctors. So it, it, part of what they did is make sure that they had a commissary, which meant they had to have relationships with a lot of the left wing bakers <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, uh, and and maybe the community shops that would throw them old food and so forth. And so he, by the time that he became involved in the CIO, he had a wealth of uh, doctors and lawyers that would bail them out. Um, you know, they were, they, they were, had good connections. They were developing out of these public struggles. Interesting. So it was, it was really the party that was provided as, as is a question I sort of had earlier, sort of what was the glue to the middle class allies. It was it was party allies, left wing allies, but it went beyond that because they had a good relationship with some of these, like I said, Bishop Scarlet. He was Episcopal <laughs> bishop of that church, and he had gotten involved in the mining struggles in the 1920s and early 1930s. He came on board. He basically said, "Hey, from you know, <laughs> we um, support their right to exist." So in St. Louis, there was uh, so his this was Rabbi Isserman and Bishop Scarlet actually said publicly that we we've got to ignore. Um, that they're communists. They're actually organizing uh, these people who are really down and out and destitute, and the um, we shouldn't uh, automatically condemn them. Now that allowed a kind of milieu that gave um, leeway to lawyers and others to support this sometimes very quietly through things like food, you know, giving people food <laughs> and organizing. And this, I, again, I was um, educated about this by Antonia Sentner. She was like, you know, it's kind of, um, it's a popular front before the popular front. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, so the, the, just uh, so people know, there's this notion that, oh, the Communist Party changed its line in 1935, and then suddenly they wanted to be part of a larger community, and they were formed what was called the Popular Front, front groups that, um, that uh, supported unions and supported the Communist Party without being part of the Communist Party. And she looked at it differently. She looked at it as a long-term organizing strategy where you needed to create the ability of middle-class people to become your allies. And she saw that, and I think other people saw that, as preceding the um, supposed formal declaration of the Communist Party, that in fact, um, if the Communist Party hadn't gone that way, there would have been, uh, it wouldn't have been successful. So, you know, we could debate all sorts of issues about the ins and outs of, of that popular front, but uh, what I'm just saying is that the Funston nut strike wouldn't have been successful with, without some of those alliances coming forward. And by the way, they were already uh, getting socialist allies. So there, there's a sectarian battles going on um, at the national level between the Socialist Party and the Communist Party. But in St. Louis, they were, they were, uh, there were some sectarian battles there too but there were um, some alliances over these struggles where they would actually come together you've been listening to the smash up derby part one of several episodes we recorded with historian rosemary Feuer talking about legendary st louis organizer william sentner stay tuned to hear more about how sentner helped organize electrical industry workers into my union ue and brought workers, farmers, and small businesses together to try to form a Missouri Valley Authority to direct economic planning after World War II. 
You can also go to smashuppodcast.com for more information about Sentner and links to Rosemary's book, Radical Unionism in the Midwest. And you can find us on Twitter at Smash Up Podcast. Thanks for listening.